In a world that is rapidly changing, what should the roles of schools and public education be? What can we do to radically change our education system so that we prepare our students for the future? And what are some of the great schools doing to tackle these issues? Welcome to the Public Schools 360 podcast, hosted by Rana Arshid Hafiz. Stanford is an urban community 35 miles north of New York City because of its proximity to New York and the many corporate headquarters that it has. It has attracted a large immigrant population. I have with me today here Michael Hernandez, who graduated from Stanford Public Schools in 2017. And we are going to talk primarily about what the experience of immigrants are in public schools here in Connecticut. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you for having me. And I think that was a very accurate description of Stanford and why it's so attractive for people from all over the world. I actually moved to Stanford in 2008. So I was 10 years old at that time. And I started in elementary school, went there through two years and middle school and high school. So my entire experience has been in public schools. And I'm currently at the University of Connecticut, so I'm still on track to only receive public education. Mm -hmm. So when we moved to Stanford in 2008, I was very new to the system. Mm -hmm. And it was very different from how schools work in other parts of the world uh, from Honduras. So learning that system was the first challenge. And my parents were not very helpful because they weren't familiar with that challenge. So when you speak about immigrant parents or immigrant children in our public schools, it really is an institutional issue because these institutions are there to facilitate education. But unfortunately, if you don't know the system, what these institutions end up doing is limiting people like, like immigrants rather than empowering them. So I think that was the first challenge of attending a public school as an immigrant. And that was something that I had to learn during my entire tenure in Stanford Public Schools. So each year was really a new learning experience. And it's not until now that I'm able to really comprehend how the system works. And I'm able to share that knowledge with my parents. So tell me a little bit about, you know, specifically about immigrant parent experiences and specifically then focusing in on your parents' experiences. So what are some tools your parents could have had or you wish they were empowered with that would have facilitated your, obviously you did well in public schools, that's why you're going to college here and UConn is a very good school here, but what could they, what could they have done to enhance your experience? Yeah, so part of it, like I explained, is knowing the system. So what does that really mean? It's, let's do a short comparison here. If, say, you have parents that grew up here in the United States, went through the public school system, when their kids are going to school, they know what that's like. They know, they'll say, hey, Johnny, go on this field trip, take advantage of this opportunity. And one of them is AP classes, for example. And that's why we see such disparities in AP enrollment, because a lot of the kids enrolling in those classes have parents who were in those classes. So this is absolutely true for immigrant families. So for in my parents' case, I wish somebody had told them. For example, for college applications, I wish they told my parents that the college application process really starts in eighth grade. 
You really go into high school with some kind of game plan, some sort of idea. You start planning there. So I wish somebody had told my parents that because they were really not very helpful with the college application process. So there isn't much information available out there. So I think the first step to empowering immigrant parents is giving them information on how the system works. How are schools funded, for example? What AP classes are? I was giving a workshop in Hartford two weeks ago about AP enrollment, and there were a few parents that are part of this program in Stanford from an organization called Building One Community. They're called the Power Parents, Mm -hmm. and they are really involved, and they've been doing and leading some very great initiatives. But as I was talking about AP classes, Some of them had kids in high school, and they were saying, well, what are AP classes? What are advanced placement classes? How can my kids enroll in that? And they were so excited about the idea of AP classes, and they were sort of shocked that they didn't know about them. Mm -hmm. And then that really tells you that something as small as a flyer or some kind of informative event for these parents would really change the game for these kids. So, you know, I myself am an immigrant to this country, but when immigrants come to this country, country, and particularly with young children, it is a very challenging time for them. So what are, and, and for each community, it's a different challenge, right? You know, coming from different yes. ethnic groups. So what are some of the things, of course, there are things that public schools can do. You mentioned that, you know, letting them know how this process starts early. And I do know many schools do provide some of these things, but they're obviously not working. So if you could speak to two things. One is, what would be an effective way for schools to communicate and work with the parents? And what can the communities do within themselves, you know, to empower themselves? Well, it is very true that many, many different communities have implemented different strategies, but they're very similar and they're not working. Mm -hmm. And... I think that this is because a lot of the times the people that are leading those kind of initiatives have absolutely no idea what the immigrant experience is like. Mm -hmm. And there's really two agents involved in parents and and involved in public education. So it's the parent and the child. And usually information is communicated through the child to the parents because the children act as interpreters and, you know, it eliminates that language barrier. So if you look at these initiatives that you mentioned, they're being led by people born in this country, people who do not have that experience. So I think a way to to create a more effective initiative would be to maybe have it be half people born here and the other half could be immigrant parents. So really have them lead the initiative so they can learn as they go along. Because that's what really was why it wasn't so empowering for me and why I learned so much as I was going through through the school system from fourth grade to 12th grade, I was learning how the system works. And now that I have that knowledge, I can share it with my parents and I can share it with my siblings. So the parents that would lead some kind of initiative like that would be able to share that knowledge with other immigrant parents because these communities also tend to stick together, which would actually be really helpful for something like this. Because then if you have a few parents involved, then it really could spread, you know, if it's a very sticky message. What are the what are some of the challenges, particular challenges immigrant communities face when interacting with the public school system? I think the first one would be the language barrier, but we're seeing a lot more 
people who speak different languages that work in the school system. So some of these are some of these barriers are being eliminated. But you know, it's still something that that people struggle with. But I think that the public schools really need to bring in parents into their, for example, the parent teacher associations that exist, those different groups that really form the backbone of a lot of the activities that go on. So those kind of interactions would really change the game for these parents. Yeah, and it's interesting because PTAs will tell you that just enough parents, enough parents just don't join the PTA and they always need, they're asking for volunteers and especially in a city like Stanford, that itself is a big challenge. So somehow there is a PTA which would like parents to get engaged and they rely on the help of these parents, but somehow parents are hesitant to join them. Why do you think that happens? Wow, that's very true. Well, I think that there's an intersection of issues here as well. And you spoke before about when immigrant parents arrive in the United States, it's a very tough time. And one of them is work. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people are working very late. There's less flexibility in, in, in the kind of jobs that they're in. So it's very hard for them to join these organizations. And they meet in the evening. So there's there's so many different reasons why. And I was part of a program that's called a Parent Leadership Training Institute. And I know I'm not a parent, but mm-hmm. I, I, they still, it's a very open program. And the way the program is structured, it's, it's in the evening and they acknowledge that parents have children, that they have other responsibilities. So the program has, has a program for the children. So there's, there's a child training institute that goes on simultaneously. So the parents don't have to worry about getting a babysitter and dinner is provided for them. So things like that really help eliminate those barriers. And attendance was very strong in that program. Mm -hmm. I think everybody that was in the program was able to complete it. Really, people showed up. There were not many reasons to miss the program because it recognized all the different issues that immigrant parents have to deal with. And we can proudly say that a lot of the people that participate in in Stanford PLTI this year were immigrant parents. In this day and time, why is it important for us as an economy, for the United States economy, why is it important for us that we engage our immigrant parents and our children to, to the fullest potential that we can? Why is that? How, how do you think that impacts it? That, that's a very relevant question, and not really in the future, but really now. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, the world is so interconnected. And you hear different statistics about how many immigrants are coming, how many will be coming, how the demographics of the country are changing. And that really speaks not only to like trends here, but also international trends. People are moving everywhere. So having immigrants and having them be part of our public schools and and our different institutions here is really a learning experience, not just for them, but for people born here. Because this is the first place where you start interacting with people from other parts of the world. And they really do bring in different perspectives. I mean, I I mentioned that the public school systems in other countries are very different. Well, maybe we can learn from that. They they can bring in some of that knowledge. Or a a lot of people fleeing conflicts or different types of political persecution can bring those perspectives I mean, it's, it's, it's different reading about it on a New York Times article and really talking to somebody about what that's like. And I think that prepares people 
and gives you a little bit of insight on what the issues will be in the 21st century, because a lot of these issues that we read about are happening in other countries, and there, so many of them are not happening here. You know, for example, what we're seeing with migration trends due to global warming. I mean, that that's something that if you look at statistics, we could have some of those effects here in the coastal areas. So it's already happening in other countries and people are coming here. You know, what can we learn from them? And in terms of the economy, in particularly in Fairfield County, we know that many of the immigrants that come here, and this might just be the case for Fairfield County, but a lot of them have advanced professional degrees and many of them are contributing so much to our community. You're a recent graduate. You graduated from high school just two years ago, and you are in college right now. Do you think the schools, the way they are structured, they serve the purpose of, you know, getting students prepared to be productive citizens? And if, if, you, if, you, if so, how so? And if you don't think so, then how should they, what are some things that should be changed about public schools so that they do prepare students for careers of the future, 21st century, to be productive citizens? So talk to us a little bit about that. I actually don't think that the way schools are structured works or, or will, will continue working as we move on through the 21st century. And that's because the schools that were set up, were, you know, they were set up a lot, very long time ago, and we've, we've kept those systems. And that goes to how we fund them or the types of classes that we teach in school. For example, I know that for me, languages were very transformative. I was able to learn a few languages throughout my life. But a lot of that happened outside the classroom. I had to look outside the classroom because those opportunities weren't offered in school because that wasn't prioritized. And a lot of the schools fail to recognize the different kinds of students that are there. It's sort of like this, the school is set up with the assumption that everybody knows how the system works and that everybody is the same and that everybody's going to take the same path. So you're not going to go into school and somebody's going to tell you, hey, listen, like you don't have to go to college right away. You can take a gap year or you can look into this other opportunity or you can start a community college and then you can transfer here. You know, people don't take those things into account. So I think that the school system, if it is going to work in the 21st century, as our student body gets even more diverse, and I'm not just talking about racial diversity, but, you know, immigration status or your income level, things like that. So as we move on, I think that we need to be more aware of that as a system and take that into account. And that will really help students because... It's really giving them an education that is tailored to what they need. So if you were, if you were given the charge of designing a school, what would that look like? Oh, one can only wish. Mm. But I think a school, if I could design my own school, I would definitely do it in Stanford, first of all. It's just such a great community. There's really very few places like it. And when you're endowed with such a great treasure, I think that there's a lot of responsibility. And I, I hope people recognize that. But if, if I could design my own school, it would be a school where children would come and there would be no assumptions. There would be some kind of bias training. And I know there's a lot of bias trainings going on out there. But this would be a training in which you would talk about the intersection of race, immigration status, income, things like that. And 
have people really know what the community looks like. I think that any teacher or administrator that works in Stanford Public Schools should read about the history of Stanford, the people that are in Stanford, the people that are coming into Stanford, the different neighborhoods, different things like that. Because I know that in many places, there's uh, neighborhood schools. Whereas in Stanford, we don't really have that. People are bused. Uh, you might live in Springdale, but you'll be bused to a school in North Stanford where Schofield is, for example. So we're bringing people from all over the city. And sometimes it feels like people don't know where those kids are coming from. So if I could design a school, it would be a school where there would be bias training, there wouldn't be those assumptions, and there would be more conversations with, with students. I think students should be giving a little bit more, a little bit more control of their education in, in high school, a little bit in the way you're giving college, not as much, obviously, because you're learning and you're still a young adult. But we're giving kids more expectations in high school, more responsibility, and we're giving them no control. So I think this would empower students. I remember in sixth grade, I had a, uh, my algebra teacher said something to me and I, I didn't believe him. I had no idea what he's talking about. This is what he said to me. He said that I was a good student in high school, but he said that I would have a better time in college and I would be a better student in college. And I didn't believe him because, you know, you know college is going to be more difficult. I'm like, this makes no sense. <laughs> and now that I am in college, I can see exactly what he's talking about. And it's because here in college... I feel empowered by the resources that are provided to me, not limited, like the way I, I mentioned that I felt in high school. And I feel more in control. And when you are in control, that means that you're able to advocate yourself. That's what control really is. It's not really saying, this is what I want. I don't want that class because I don't like math. It's saying, this is the kind of math class that I need. This is the kind of career path that I want to follow. This is what I want to do for my community. And... I think that high school should learn a little bit from that. And that would also prepare students for what college is like. So in the school, your dream school that you have designed, there is a sixth grader who's in, supposedly, you know, it doesn't have to be called, there's a student who's, say, 10, 11 years old. How would you make sure that they have mastered, you know, they're able to read at a certain level, they're able to write at a certain level, they have, you know, they can perform in mathematics. You know, typically in sixth grade, you start complex operations with fractions and decimals. How would you ensure that the student knows how to do all these things? Well, I think that the dream school that I was mentioning would also keep a lot of the exams that we already have. I know that there's a lot of concern with the kind of examinations we have and particularly the SATs and ACTs, things like that, because we know that a lot of people are able to take preparation courses that are very expensive and as a result are able to perform a little bit better. So probably that's not the kind of test I would imagine. I think tests have, they're valuable. And I've learned something in college. The tests have been a little bit different. For example, in my political science courses, we don't take multiple choice tests. My chemistry class, it's not really multiple choice. It's open-ended questions. It's really measuring if you understand the content and it's testing your math skills in chemistry. It's testing your writing skills in political science. So I think that in, in, in high schools or, or in middle schools, we should move from those Scantron sheets and more into open-ended kind of exams where you can't really prepare by 
enrolling in a $3,000 prep course, you really must have been in the classroom, paying attention, practicing every day, seeking help from your teacher. And what should the teacher be teaching you? Yeah, I, I, I think the teachers should be incorporating their, their material with current events. So if we're learning about colonization or things like that, we can incorporate that. And, and, and how about we talk about immigration patterns? And then so it doesn't become this very abstract concept about people moving four, three, four centuries ago. And we could talk about, you know, it's and, and do some kind of comparison. And that might be more interesting for kids. It's like, hey, like I'm listening in the news that people are moving en masse all over the world. This is not new. This is something that, that has happened before. And I know that's happened to me before in school where I'm like, oh, my God, when I learn about something, when I read something that Plato wrote, for example, I'm like, uh, you know, I find myself shocked sometimes in my English class. I'm like, Plato was saying this thousands of years ago. And to us, it sounds so radical today. So it's those aha moments that have made, for me, it's made my education interesting. Mm-hmm. That to me is fascinating. And for example, I speak with my brother sometimes. You'd be surprised by how deeply young kids think. And, and I, I, I talk a lot with my little brother, my little sister, who are still in public schools in Stanford. Mm-hmm. And... I start telling them things that I've learned throughout the years. We, they ask me different questions. Like, they'll ask me about, like, why is there, why are there stars? You know, why, what happened in this time in history? And I'll sort of give them what I know. And then I, I see how shocked they are and how fascinated they are and how they keep asking questions and how they connect what they've learned in the classroom, the theoretical stuff, the, the history with what's happening. So what should students be tested for and what should they be learning? It's how, it's how, how what, human knowledge we have can be connected and used to to the problems of the 21st century. And I think that also speaks to how can we prepare students for for the 21st century, for the new economy. And certainly, you know, this, if many thinkers would argue that we are going through a a new kind of revolution of sorts, this is the post-industrial revolution. We are in an age of, you know, technological revolution and biotechnology revolution. So certainly in the realms of mathematics and science, there has to be learning of a different kind, I imagine. What do you think? I agree. I, I, I agree. Actually, this was a little bit concerning for me. So I'm currently a sophomore mm-hmm. at UConn. And the first time I heard about artificial intelligence sort of presented in the way it's presented as a new economy as, as this post-industrial revolution, the first time it was presented to me in that way was last year. It was my freshman year of college. In high school, we did not talk about nanotechnology, biotechnology, infotechnology, robotics, AI. I think we did, never talked about that. We never talked about how that would impact what we're learning because we're not even learning about the issue. Yeah. So I think it speaks volumes about how public school systems are going to cope with this. And in my opinion, they're really not quite there yet. They're not even talking about the issue. And we know from college campuses that these ideas start as conversations. They start talking about the issues. College starts with professors just bouncing back ideas with students. And we're not even seeing that at the high school level. So I think it's very concerning for somebody like myself to go through the entire school system without hearing about all of these concepts that are going to define the 21st century. 
Many educators would say, though, that, you know, foundational physics, chemistry, biology, which is covered in traditional middle schools and high schools, that does lay the foundation for scientific thinking, but perhaps incorporate that with all the advances in the sciences that as we see them now. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Those, those are completely necessary. Those are the foundations that, that all of these new technologies are based on. You mm-hmm. have to understand that. Mm-hmm. But it's making those relevant connections. I mean, like just everybody seems to have a smartphone nowadays. All, you know, you've got kids in middle school who have phones now. So I think just connecting some kind of lesson in, in, in their science class about, about phones, you know, probably with, with uh, chemistry. For example, in, in my current chemistry class, my professor worked in the industry and she always makes references from what we're learning in class to, she tells us like boron or this other chemical has this kind of application, or this is what's found on your phone or on the clothes you're wearing or things like that. And that to me really makes it relevant and interesting. So it's just making it relevant for, for students. Thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to talk to us. Are there any closing thoughts you have? Thank you for having me. And I'd like to end with how I begin, which is that schools are really great ideas. They're really great institutions. They, they really facilitate learning. But schools need to be places that empower people and, you know, don't limit them. So hopefully we'll start moving in that direction. Thanks. Thank you.